The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Looking at the verses that Pastor Cliff read. Verses 12 through 19. In a recent article on leadership, the author provided, I thought, a helpful example of teamwork from a couple of men in the U.S. military. The first was from a Green Beret, U.S. Special Forces. His name is Jason Van Camp. And he, uh, in his little section, he explains the importance of how each member in that team, however large that team was, he, that each individual member needed to focus on each other member for the sake of the team as a whole. And he described his experience in the Green Beret and at least in the, the training exercises like this. He said, one of our first exercises they do in Green Beret training is they put you in teams, give you a huge log, and tell you to hold, hold it over your head for hours. Sounds like fun. Some of you guys might do that on weekends. I don't know. Everybody's miserable and focused on themselves. In that horrible, mo- horrible moment, I lifted up my head. The guys around me were all suffering just as bad as I was, if not worse than I was. Then my friend Pat lifted up his head as well. We looked at each other and shouted. He looked at, we looked at each other and he shouted, Let's go, Jay, you got this. And I mustered some energy to shout some words of encouragement back to him. I noticed that more guys were lifting up their heads and looking around. We all began to focus on each other rather than on ourselves. We began to forget about our pain. Time moved faster. The log felt lighter. The reality is that nothing changed about our situation except our attitude. Another example is from a Marine, a former Marine, Marine named Jake McDonald. McDonald was stationed in Iraq in 2002. And he was telling of a time when they were pushing, their forces were pushing into Iraq while the oil fields were on fire. Some of us might remember seeing that on television. And they had been pushing for 48 hours, pushing their line for 48 hours in full chem suits and gas masks with no sleep and no food during that time. Sounds pretty intense. And they finally got the order to stop. And I'm sure they were just like, wow, just total relief. Well, that relief did not last long because immediately after they were told to stop, the commander in charge told them to get back out on patrol. And Jake McDonald was immediately impressed by that command. And he said this, he said, I was incensed because I was thinking, doesn't this guy know what it means to care for his people? But I quickly realized Taking care of us meant bringing us all back home to our loved ones. And that meant my platoon had to provide security so other guys could get some sleep. When you're looking out for your team's best interests, you have to tell people things they don't want to hear and hold each other accountable. Uh, The success of our military is really built on teams like this, where individual soldiers are looking out for each member for the good of the team as a whole. You have to have a genuine concern and care for each member in your team in order for the team itself to do well, to have success, to survive. And the church is very similar to these teams in the military. We are currently in a battle for our lives. 
It's not a battle that the world recognizes, and if we fall asleep, it's a battle that we will forget currently rages. But we are currently in a severe and significant battle. In a battle for our souls and for the souls, as we'll see, of our brothers and sisters. There is a great enemy, and he has a large and powerful spiritual military who is constantly engaging with us to try to throw us off course, to try to destroy us. And so we are truly in a war or a battle, you might say. And we have to take an active interest, as this text will tell us, we have to take an active interest in each other's spiritual well-being so none of us is picked off by the enemy. Last week we studied verses 11 or verses 1 through 11 in Hebrews chapter 3, and there are two commands in that passage. The first command was consider Jesus, and the second command was do not harden your hearts. And those commands were to get us to individually focus on ourselves and our own walk with the Lord. That's necessary. It's necessary to be concerned with our own hearts, as I hope was clear last week. We must make sure that our hearts don't harden when we are hearing the word, when we're receiving the word, always keeping it soft through faith. We are told to consider Jesus in order to enable us to continue to believe and to continue to keep that heart soft, to recognize that Jesus is our high priest and our savior, the one who is our perfect righteousness, the one who's laid down our life so that as we sang today, our debt is fully paid. He died in our place. In light of Jesus's deity, in light of his humanity, in light of his superiority to Moses and to the entire old covenant, we are to consider Jesus Christ. But the reason we must be careful to consider Jesus And the reason we must be careful not to harden our hearts to God and His Word is because we can't have assurance that we belong to Christ if we do not continue to believe in Him. And that was the message of last week. We can't have assurance that we belong to Christ unless we are continuing to believe in Him. And hence the exhortation to not harden your hearts. And that was for every person in the congregation. Every professing believer, the message of last week was consider Jesus and do not harden your hearts. The focus of today's message is for your responsibility for your brother and sister in the faith. Your responsibility for the other members at CBC. That'll be the focus of this passage. Last week it was you concerning yourself with your own walk with the Lord and your own softness of heart. Now it's being concerned with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the first thing that we're going to look at in this text is our attitude. And the second thing we're going to look at has to do with the action that we must take. But let's first look at our attitude. Let's look at our attitude, the attitude that we are supposed to have as brothers and sisters to our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow soldiers at arms, because we truly are in a battle. The verse, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The word translated take care is used elsewhere in the New Testament to say, look at, observe, pay attention to. It could just refer to beholding something or seeing something. And here it's in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. It's not optional. And it's something to do, but it has to do with an attitude that we are to have. We are to have a certain attitude. We are to take care or observe or pay attention to. Observe observe probably isn't strong enough. We probably need to go with what the ESV says here. Take care. Brothers, pay attention to your brothers and sisters. Why? So that none of you 
will have an evil, unbelieving heart. That there will be found among any of us an ev- someone with an evil, unbelieving heart. Among our church family, we should have a genuine concern for every single member that no one shows signs of unbelief. That no one walks away from the faith. You should have a holy anxiety, so to speak. Did you know some anxiety is good? Yeah, that's right. Maybe you haven't heard that before. Some anxiety is good. Anxiety, holy anxiety over your brother and sister's spiritual condition, that's good. And that's what we're called to here. To take care, to pay attention, to be invested in your brother's and sister's spiritual life. To be invested, as we'll see, in their perseverance in the faith. But you might say this, okay, Derek, why don't you hang on here a second? I know something you don't know. These people you're talking about, they're members at CBC. And in order to have a membership at CBC, you have to be able to articulate a testimony. You also have to be able to share the gospel. I know that the people here are true believers. So why are you telling us to have such a deep and overriding concern about other people's spiritual lives? I mean, you've already vetted them through the membership process. They're members. There there shouldn't be anything... I have to engage in. I mean, you're kind of giving, getting a little overwrought here, don't you think? Getting a little carried away? It is true that the elders seek to do the best we can in judging whether or not someone is a genuine believer as they make their way through the membership process. And we do it to the best of our ability. As far as we can tell, we seek to uh, make sure that everyone in the membership process and has come through the membership process is a genuine Believer, when you inquire for membership here at CBC, something that I encourage you to do if you've been here for a while and, and haven't done that, as we'll see, it's, it's vitally important. But when you inquire at, uh, for membership at CBC, you, you have to, at each part of the process, it's about, you could say, a three-step process, you have to be able to articulate your testimony, describe how you were saved, how you went from darkness to light, However that happens, we have a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different testimonies. It happens in a lot of different ways with a lot of our members. Just have to be able to articulate that happens, how that happened, and then be able to articulate the gospel. What is the good news that saved you? And you have to do that at every step of the way. So that when someone stands up here in front and Pastor Tim introduces them as a member of the church, we have great confidence that they are a born-again believer, that they have tasted of the Lord's mercy and that they're on their way to heaven. And that is the work that we do as elders. It's an important work. We believe that church membership should only be made up of regenerate church members, of regenerate Christians. Nevertheless, there should be a genuine concern that your fellow CBC member does not exhibit signs of unbelief, of hardening. Does that sound a little little strange? Well, the reason why this is the case is because none of us, not one of us, have access, immediate access, into the heart of another person. Ultimately, I can't know for certain, even with members, that they are born again. All we have is the evidence that we have before us. And it's, it's, it's pretty solid evidence. But I can't have absolute certainty. All we have to go on is what we see in someone's life and what they say with their mouths. When what we see and what we hear aligns with what Scripture says, says should characterize a believer, we have confidence that that person is, in fact, a born-again believer. 
And we're not talking about perfection here. We've never looked for some sort of artificial perfection among a, 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 an inquiring church member, a potential church member. We're talking about a person who has professed faith in Christ, who has a love for the Lord, and who is just seeking to walk in faith and obedience to Him. That's it. Not in perfection, but in a particular direction of their life. But when we see and hear things from a professing Christian that does not align with what Scripture teaches should characterize a believer, then we do have some concern. And now the author of Hebrews is exhorting us to have an active awareness of how our brothers or sisters are doing spiritually. But the point of this is not to cause us to be skeptical about each other's profession of faith. That actually would kind of defeat the whole purpose here. In fact, one of the benefits of having a clear and defined membership process where we do make sure that people are able to articulate their testimony and articulate the gospel is that now we don't have to be skeptical about one another's faith. We have great confidence that we are among other believers here at CBC. That's one of the reasons why we believe that this church is healthy because we labor to make sure that those who fill the membership roles are genuine Christians. And it's why we don't have to Uh, worry so much about that. Nevertheless, in God's wisdom, he has designed the church in such a way that our perseverance in the faith is a group effort. Our perseverance in the faith is a group effort. Remember, one way that God keeps us believing is by giving us serious warnings of what happens if we stop believing. Remember, that's one of the, the keys to understanding the book of Hebrews. One of the ways that he keeps you in the faith is by giving you a sharp warning of what will happen if you stop believing. But another way, another vital and important and beautiful and wonderful and actually very pleasant way, a lot of the time, it's not always pleasant, sometimes it's hard as we'll see, but one of the other ways that God keeps us in the faith is by placing us in a community with other believers so that we can constantly encouraging and exhorting one another to never fall away from Christ. He places us in a community where each of us is meant to have a special and genuine concern for each other member that we all persevere in the faith. But let me make something clear at this point because there may be some who I suspect have a tender conscience at this point. What the author is not suggesting And he doesn't want you to begin to think this way. You're not supposed to be reading this and and step back and say, have I been hardened beyond salvation? You're talking about this perseverance and you're talking about hardening and and trying to make sure that my heart remains soft. am Am I someone who's been hardened beyond salvation? Hardened beyond being able to be rescued and saved? That's not at all what the author is intending to communicate. That's not what he wants you to conclude. He's not saying that anyone has hardened themselves beyond salvation. He's not saying that that has actually happened in the congregation. He's telling them to take care lest it happen. It's a genuine exhortation. It's a genuine warning. But he's not wanting the people to step back and say, Oh my goodness, have I hardened myself beyond salvation? That's not what he's doing. It's a straightforward command. It's for me and for you to care about the spiritual life and our each other's heart for God. It's a command for me to care for your spiritual life and heart for God. And it's a can, command for you to care about my spiritual life and my heart for God. That's the command. Straightforward. 
Easy to understand. So the command then is to have a posture of active awareness and genuine concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ in their walk with the Lord. This is the attitude that we must have about our church relationships. We're not just to come to church on a Sunday or during the week to receive our spiritual feeding, though that is vital. That is absolutely vital. But that's not all we are to do. We are to come to church to cultivate relationships, to get to know people so we can take an active interest in their spiritual life, in their walk with the Lord, and so that they can take an active interest in mine. Why? Because this is how we persevere in the faith. We do it together. And this may sound a little uncomfortable for some of us because some of us just may recoil at this because we're just generally shy. Some of us may start to bristle at these kinds of exhortations because we don't want that kind of accountability and we don't want people in our lives that closely because we fear what they might actually discover. But this instruction from Scripture is not optional. It's a straightforward exhortation, a straightforward command. And it's actually built upon a conditional warning, a conditional exhortation like the one we saw last week. I don't want to get get ahead of ourselves here, but I will say that this instruction to take an active interest in how your brother or sister's spiritual life is doing is an important and essential component to their perseverance in the faith. And your perseverance in the faith, we all persevere together or not at all. I'll say that again. We all persevere together or not at all. That's the way God has designed it. And this is not some sort of cult-like intrusiveness into a person's life where you want access into things that rightly belong to them. That would be wrong. It's a loving and prayerful watchfulness for your brothers and sisters that is willing to speak into their lives when you notice signs of spiritual drift. This is, how we, this is how we get there. This is how we get to heaven. We do it together. So this is a loving, prayerful watchfulness for your brothers and sisters that is willing to speak into one's life if signs of spiritual drift begin to manifest themselves. You can start to see why church membership becomes so important. Because you need to commit yourself to a body of believers with whom you can do this very thing. And with whom they can do that with you. They can can do this. This is a reciprocal relationship. You are concerned with their spiritual life and they are concerned with yours. Just briefly, what are some signs of spiritual drift? Just drawing from the book of Hebrews itself. We'll talk about this sign in a moment. But the first cause of concern that someone's heart is beginning to drift and beginning to harden is they begin to pull away from the body of Christ. That That is red flag number one. They begin to pull away from the body of Christ, which is exactly why the author of Hebrews makes the community of believers so central to one's walk with the Lord in this passage and again in chapter 10. It warns regularly against neglecting corporate worship and fellowship. Another sign of spiritual drift is an unwillingness to part with sin. Stubbornness and unrepentant sin is a sure sign that the heart is hardening. And that person is in danger of falling away from the living God. Another sign, and you can see that in uh, chapter 10, verse 26, chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. 
Another sign is a lack of interest in deeper spiritual truths, a lack of desire to grow spiritually, a lack of spiritual hunger. That's happening in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. The author was very concerned because these Christians were just remaining theologically at a very surface level. There was a growing lack of wanting to dive into the truths of God's word and grow spiritually. There is a lack of spiritual hunger, and that concerns him. A lack of spiritual advance, so to speak. And that can happen when the heart begins to harden because we're growing more and more disinterested with the things of the Lord and more and more interested with the things of this world. But even before we see these signs, even before we see these signs, we need to be about a loving, prayerful watchfulness that leads to action. And that's our next point here, the action that we must take. So there's this attitude The attitude that you have with another brother and sister, you care for them and you care that they make it all the way to the end. You care that they don't harden their heart. You care that they remain in the faith and professing Jesus Christ as Lord. You care about that. And I don't need to say this, but I'll say, anyways, it makes you sad when when you see them bail on the faith. I mean, the list grows for me since college of people that I knew and have known who have bailed on the faith. And each one, I see each name, and it breaks my heart. And it should break our hearts when we know of people like that in our midst. So here's the command. This is how we preempt that. Here's the command. Exhort your brothers and sisters every day. See what he says here. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. See? That's, that's the preemptive strike against this falling away. Make sure this doesn't happen. Exhort one another every day. This word for exhort can be translated elsewhere in the New Testament as encourage, but I think the ESV is right here to use the word exhort because it's a little stronger. In light of the context, in light of the seriousness of the situation, in light of the seriousness of the warnings, I think exhort is the right word to use. The picture here is of a fellow Christian constantly inciting, motivating, and urging another believer to keep believing and keep moving in the faith. To keep moving towards that final heavenly reward. To keep serving the Lord. To keep seeking the Lord. To keep confessing sin. To keep repenting to keep resisting temptation, to keep putting sin to death. And I say constantly because that's what it says here, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Every day this must be happening. Now, the verb here that is translated exhort is actually used in noun form to refer to the Holy Spirit. You may may know that already. Parakaleo is the, the word. The connection here should be, obviously, I, I, I hope, the, com- the connection here with the Holy Spirit should be obvious, be- especially because the author has already mentioned in verse 7, when he's quoting Psalm 95, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he goes on to quote Psalm 95, and here he's using a word that is el- used elsewhere to refer to the, the Holy Spirit and his work and what he is about. The, what we, the conclusion that we can draw is that one of the means that the Holy Spirit uses to keep God's people believing is through the regular exhortations of fellow believers. The Holy Spirit 
the exhorter, the encourager. How does he do it? Well, one of the ways he does it is through you. You are the Holy Spirit's instrument in the work of keeping your brothers and sisters in the faith. Is that amazing? He has other means through through the word of God, but you are one of his primary instruments in keeping other people believing. I just that just should blow us away. What an important and exalted place you have in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter what your gifts are. You have an important and exalted place in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is using you to keep other believers believing. That's amazing. So there are two implications that I think we need to draw out of that truth. The one is for the one delivering the exhortation, right? Exhort one another every day. So for the person delivering the exhortation, you need to make sure that you're delivering a truly biblical principle or exhortation. You are not exhorting your brothers and sisters in Christ to stop cheering for the 49ers and to start cheering for the New York Jets. That would be a mere preference. And the Holy Spirit is not about you dictating your preferences throughout the church. That's that's not the Holy Spirit's ministry. A real exhortation must have a sound biblical basis. Then you can know that you are acting on behalf of the Holy Spirit. For the one receiving the exhortation, when it is biblically grounded, you can have the confidence that that message is from the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? You want to know if the Holy Spirit is speaking through someone? Are they coming to you with a biblically grounded truth? There it is. Do not resist the Spirit and His pleadings to you through that other person. When you resist the biblical pleadings from a fellow brother and sister in Christ, you are not merely resisting that person. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. If that person is coming with biblical truth. Rightly applied and in your particular setting. But what's the purpose of this regular exhortation? What's the purpose? You can see it here. That none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the purpose. Notice the progression. Sin presents itself as something desirable. You embrace the sin instead of believing in God's good promises. And your heart experiences some kind of hardening against God and His will. That's the process. But notice how it accomplishes its goal. Sin is deceitful. It tricks you. And this is precisely why we need each other. We can't always tell on our own if we're being taken captive by sin's clever tactics. We can't. We all This is a universal truth. We all have blind spots. And those of us who drive, we know exactly what blind spots are. We're driving along 85. We want to get over into the right lane so we can get off on De Anza. And all of a sudden you're going over and you're turning over and you hear all this blaring honking and screaming and whatever else. They got the window down and they're yelling at you. And what what happened? Well, before you merged, you were looking around and you were making sure everything was fine. You got your... your, uh, rear view mirrors and everything's good you've even got some some fancy cameras over here well you couldn't see that person why because they were in your blind spot you were diligent you looked around but they were still in a your uh, blind spot and so you almost smashed into them or maybe you did smash into them this week i don't know i hope you didn't 
But this is exactly why you need the body of Christ. The body of Christ is an absolute need for you as a believer. Why? Because it is simply not possible for you to be aware of every single sin that might deceive you. It's not possible. You can be extra diligent and even hyper vigilant about your walk with the Lord. You can engage in self-examination and strive to live a holy life. But you cannot, for all your efforts, see every sin in your life. It's not a matter of whether or not you have blind spots. It's not a matter of whether or not I have blind spots. It's a matter of which blind spots I have and where they are located. I have blind spots, so I need you to encourage and exhort me when you see me drifting into sin, that I may see it, wake up, and turn away from it. And you need to do the same for all of your fellow members here at CBC. But I think it would be helpful to just take a moment to back up here and to to reflect and to meditate upon this phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Because it would be sin's deceitfulness that would cause us to hurry through this, wouldn't it? And to not think about how it's deceitful. I mean, isn't that just the very essence of deceit? To say, oh, we we got this. No, we need to think exactly about how sin is deceitful, don't we? We need some serious enemy intel to, to go along with this military a theme that I just can't shake. We need some serious enemy intel to know how our enemy works so we can defeat him. So how does sin work? How is it deceitful? Well, first, and these are all with the letter P, so you can, so it helps you memorize this, okay? And because I'm learning from Austin. Um, sin promises. Sin promises. Sin is a master at false advertising. Just a a master at false advertising. You guys, after I did a little research on the most recent uh, forms of false advertising, I'm now, I'm so skeptical at any kind of advertising, I can't even see it anymore. I'm like, oh, they're lying. They're probably lying. (laughs) The Lumosity app, you guys might have remembered that app that you could get on, on your phones. And they said that it was used... It was, it was games and, and brain training exercises that you could play. And I even tried playing some of them. I'm like, oh, good, this is strengthening my brain. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to help prevent Alzheimer's. And so this is good. I'm, getting, I'm way ahead of the game here. Uh, well, actually, they had no proof that it did such a thing. And they eventually had to pay $2 million um, as a fine for this false advertising. Well, they're not the only ones who, who've done things like this. Uh, Coca-Cola falsely claimed that its vitamin water products could promote healthy joints and, and reduce certain kinds of diseases and, and provide other kinds of health benefits. And so they eventually had to agree to change their labels and take away these kind of stark promises. Uh, you remember this? Frosted Mini Wheats was, was saying that it could improve children's attentiveness by 20%, uh, but it didn't increase nearly to that much. And the vast majority of children who ate uh, for the vast majority of children who ate the cereal, and then they had to pay a $4 million settlement and stop using those ads. Uh, and here's the most egregious one, quite honestly. Airborne. Airborne, the, the dietary supplements, remember those? You put them in, you, you're about ready to go on a flight, and you put them in your water, and you drink down that horrible liquid, and it's supposed to increase your immune system so that when you fly on the plane, you're not going to get sick. Airborne claimed that it helped ward off harmful bacteria and germs, and then it would prevent you from getting the flu and so on. But there was no evidence to support that assertion, and they eventually had to pay a $23 million lawsuit. And so, just just ridiculous forms of false advertising. Far more serious than that is the way sin 
is a master at false advertising. Just a, a master at it. It promises joy, pleasure, success, wisdom, fulfillment, and happiness, but it can't finally deliver, just like these products couldn't finally deliver. It's not to say that sin doesn't deliver some of these things in some measure for a moment. And that's precisely the appeal that sin makes, isn't it? That's precisely the appeal. It's not as though sexual sin isn't pleasurable at some level. It's just that that pleasure it delivers is temporary, it's one-dimensional, it's weak, and it defiles your conscience, and it ruins your relationships, and it harms your walk with God. And if you continue in it, you will face God's judgment. Sin deceives us by promising us true happiness and pleasure, but it can't ultimately deliver. It only gives us a counterfeit happiness and a counterfeit pleasure. A pleasure that is superficial, a pleasure that is temporary. But God offers us eternal pleasures, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1611. For the believer, there is a, a universe and a, an eternity of pleasure that will affect mind and body and soul and in, in every conceivable way. And that's waiting for the believer. That's Psalm 1611. Pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. That's what the psalmist was excited about. That's what David was exciting about. When we trust in God, he gives us more joy in our hearts than when others around us prosper in their worldly goods. That's Psalm 4-7. Godly wisdom is very pleasant. That's what we learn in Proverbs 2. And a good conscience is one of the best feelings in the world. Debate me. A good conscience is one of the best feelings in the world. In fact, I don't think you can really enjoy life the way it is intended to be enjoyed without a good conscience. A guilty conscience only enjoys things halfway, if that. A good conscience is one of the best feelings in the world. Sin will try to persuade you that it can provide something better. It cannot. It can't. So sin promises, but it also pretends. It pretends to be something good. And I see this happening with uh, young Christian folks when they're dating an unbeliever. Although scripture is clear that believers and unbelievers cannot marry and you cannot be unequally yoked with an unbeliever and that a, be a believer and an unbeliever are, cannot share anything of ultimate importance in common because of their spiritual situation. Nevertheless, I, I hear things like this from the believing person. They'll say things like, I'm the only Christian he or she knows. If I break up with him, he won't hear the gospel. By dating him, I'm showing him up close what true Christianity looks like so he might get saved. I haven't heard that once. I've heard that a few times. But you can be sure that a person talking like this is in the throes of self-deception. They are in the throes of self-deception. God's commandment, commandments, and this is an important truth for all of us, God's, God's commandments will never be in conflict with one another. That person's desire for their boyfriend to be saved, that's a good desire, but she doesn't need to date him for him to get saved. And by continuing to date him, you actually are giving him grounds to not believe in Christ. Why? This person was claiming, no, I'm showing them what true Christianity looks, Christianity looks like. No, you're not. You're showing them what it looks like to compromise on Christ and to value a human relationship more than Christ. So now they don't know what real faith looks like. They don't know what it means to come to Christ because they're looking at you going, wait, you value me more than you value your Lord and Savior. So what does it mean to actually come to Christ? And so you actually throw them into confusion. This girlfriend was deceived because sin pretended to be something good. In this case, an opportunity to evangelize an unbelieving boyfriend. 
So sin promises, it pretends, but it also presents itself as harmless. It might do this sometimes. It might say, okay, you're right. I'm sin. You got me. All right. But a little sin ain't that bad. It's not that bad. Just a little look at something illicit on the internet. Just a little lie. Just a little indulgence and bitterness. Just a little drunkenness once a week. Just a little padding of my expense account. Just a little fudging on my taxes. Just a little messing around with my girlfriend. Just a little taking, uh, taking of a little money from my employer. Just, oh, come on. Let's not get all worked up. But this is a very cunning tactic on sin's part. Because it knows that just a little sin must logically lead to greater sin. Once you allow for any sin, you allow for all sin. Once you allow for any sin, you allow for all sin. And you might be thinking, come on, Derek, would you get off it? Really, do you think that just because I told a little lie that I'm eventually going to commit huge fraud and ruin my life and ruin my family's life? I don't think that's going to happen. That's not going to really happen. That can't happen to me if I just tell one little lie. To which I would respond, really? On what, on what logical grounds can you argue that? If you allow for a little lie, you've already grown insensible to that level of lying. That will make it easier for you to tell a bigger lie and, and in the process, eventually tell more lies until you are now sitting in court awaiting trial for embezzlement. That's how sin works. One of sin's most hidden and powerful tactics is to work incrementally so that it leads us imperceptibly into greater sin. One of sin's most hidden and powerful tactics is to work incrementally, slow, steady, just incrementally, so that it leads us imperceptibly into greater sin. All of a sudden, we're in, we're in court and we're like, how did we get here? I embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sin also plays down the consequences. It plays down the consequences. It hides all the consequences you will experience if you commit sin. It doesn't tell you about the defiled and burdened conscience that you will experience. It doesn't tell you about the destruction sin will cause your relationships. It doesn't warn you that your sin will bring about God's wrath. It doesn't tell you that the pleasure that you experience will, it will fade the moment that sin is over. It doesn't tell you that the pleasure itself is not even worth it. It doesn't tell you any of those things. It hides the consequence. It doesn't tell the occasional drunkard that he will eventually lose his job and his wife and his house and his children. And I've got anecdotal evidence to prove that one. Sin plays down its consequences and deceives us into indulging in it. So it promises, it pretends, it presents, it plays down, but it persuades us, this is the last one, to isolate ourselves from other believers. It will deceive us by persuading us to isolate ourselves from other believers. And this is a deadly tactic because it takes us away from the only earthly resources, resource that can recapture us into spiritual life and health. It's the only, the church and the body of believers is the only human resource, the only earthly resources we have to escape the clutches of sin. A sure sign that a person is in the thick of sin's deception is when they drop out of church. They drop out of fellowship. They drop out meeting with believers. They stop coming to Sunday worship. They start resisting accountability and begin to get frustrated when other Christians start asking the hard questions. Once a person moves out of the body of Christ, their situation can only get worse because there's no way of re recapturing them back. Why? Because the longer they drift away from the body, 
The more proud they become, the more self-sufficient they become, the more wise in their own eyes they become. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. That breaking out against all sound judgment is probably a reference to what happens when you go to this person who's isolated themselves and you give them sound judgment and they don't want to have any part of it. You try to recapture them. You try to reclaim them. You try to win them back and they want nothing of it. The wisdom is good. The wisdom is sound. But the isolated person gets angry and fights with them. I, if we had three hours, I could list you the number of times I've seen this in my own personal life and ministry. It would take three hours. I've experienced this firsthand. We have elders have experienced this firsthand. People who have isolated themselves and, less, and left the body most of the time are practically impossible to communicate with because their thinking has become so warped and their sin has, been, has so badly ensnared them. I remember during college uh, hearing a story from a, a friend of mine. She was actually trying to reclaim uh, a, her, one of her best friends. And this, this friend had, had wandered. And so my friend was trying to win her back. And she told me how they were driving together on the road. And my friend's really just urging and exhorting and encouraging this wandering friend. At which point the wandering friend says, Stop preaching at me! Why? Was the, was the counsel good? Yeah, the counsel was good. Was it sound? Yeah, it was sound. What was going on? This person had so isolated themselves and so hardened themselves that the the attempt to reclaim them was falling not only on deaf ears, but now frustrated and angry ears. How dare you become so intrusive into my life? Well, I'm not aware that that wandering person ever came back to the Lord, sadly. But it's precisely due to sin's deceitfulness that we need each other. I can't handle all my sin on my own. I'm not meant to, and neither are you. And quite honestly, I don't really want to. I don't really want to. That's why the author instructs us to constantly, regularly, and consistently exhort and encourage one another so we won't fall prey to sin's deceptive tactics. You know, there's actually a freedom in knowing this so that I don't have to be excessively consumed with self-examination and am I, am I, what's going on and just constantly consumed with the, the, all the various blind spots that I might have. I don't have to do that. All I have to do is live in the community of believers. And boom, you're going to tell me about my blind spots. You'll let me know about them. And some of you have. Thank you very much. Right? But that's how it's supposed to work. This is actually meant to create freedom. So we don't have this excessive worry about my, my sin and my blind spots, but actually now I entrust it to you and you let me know. So I just, I just drive down the road. I change lanes whenever I feel like it. Right? Because you're going to let me know if there's blind spots. <laughs> So, let's follow the order here. The command is to beware of each other's spiritual lives and to encourage one another. So, you've got the attitude and that action. The purpose for that exhortation and admonishment is to protect your brothers and sisters from sin's deception and its hardening effects. But the, this is the reason now we do all this hard work. Here's the reason. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Just like verse 6, we're thinking, wait, what? That's, ah, mmm, oh, sure there's not a variant in the original manuscripts. You sure you didn't write it a different way? What is he saying here? I wish he would have said it differently, 
Because it sounds like he's saying it backwards. It sounds like he's saying that I must that I can't have confidence that I have come to share in Christ if I don't keep believing in the present and into the future. And that, you might think, sounds backwards. Won't I keep believing in the present and into the future because I have been saved in the past? But he says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. So we must affirm, yes, there, it is true that you will be, keep believing in the future because you have been saved in the past. And that's taught in the Bible. It's just not taught here. It's just not taught in verse 6. And so we don't get a full, robust view of God's plan and, and, and for our perseverance if we don't receive these challenging words. The author of Hebrews, just like in verse 6, is placing the accent of his teaching on the necessity for us to continue believing. There's accent elsewhere about our salvation and about how being saved in the past is going to enable us to continue to believe in the future. That is taught clearly in Scripture. And the accent and emphasis is placed on those passages there. It's just not placed here. The accent here is on our necessity of continuing to believe. The perfect tense in the phrase, we have come, become partakers in the ESV can be translated, we are partakers, to indicate a present state or present reality. The emphasis is on your continued faith. You must keep believing to the very end to have confidence that you are a true partaker in Christ. And we may not like it to hear it that way because it's jarring, it's uncomfortable, but this is precisely the way that God keeps his people believing by giving us conditional warnings like this one to place the stress on our responsibility to keep believing. But the aim is not to destabilize your assurance. The aim is actually to strengthen your faith and to give you confidence that you are, in fact, a partaker in Christ. It's not to undermine that. It's actually to get you that assurance. But you must keep believing. It's to encourage you to continue to fight against sin and to fight to keep believing so that you can see the evidence that you truly do share in Christ. And here's what's so important. God has given us every single thing that we need to keep believing. This conditional exhortation is not meant to throw us back on our own resources, thinking that it's all up to us. We've already seen in this passage that God has given us the body of Christ to enable us to persevere to the end. We've already seen in our study of the book of Hebrews that, that, that Jesus' high priesthood and his deity and his humanity are given to us and his full atonement are given to us to enable us to persevere to the end. We will see in the next few messages that God has given us access to the very throne of grace so that we can help find help in time of need so that we will persevere to the end. God has given us every single thing that we need to make it. And one of those important pieces is the body of believers. But faith is central in this passage. It's absolutely central. Why? Because it's faith that keeps the heart soft and it's sin that hardens the heart. Faith is defined in this book with a kind of future orientation. Listen to how he defines it in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
The wilderness generation didn't believe in that future inheritance that they were going to receive, and so they hardened their heart. They didn't believe the promise that being with God in, the, in their own land was worth being with God in the wilderness. So in order to guard ourselves from the allure of sin's temporary pleasure, we have to continually, continually remind ourselves of that internal pleasure that we will experience with God after this life. We must believe that there is coming a future permanent pleasure with God in eternity that far surpasses any pleasures that sin might provide in this life. True faith in God is a faith that looks to a future reward. And by that looking and anticipating that future reward is able to set aside that which promises pleasure, but that which we know is a subpar pleasure. This is what uh, Abraham did, as we'll see in several weeks from now when we study Hebrews chapter 11. This is what Abraham did. Look at what Abraham did in chapter 11, verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive, an inher- uh, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of, the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to a future city. And not just him, but then verse 13 tells us that everyone he had just talked about, Abel and Sarah and Abraham himself, have done the same thing. They were looking for a homeland. Verse uh, 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What is faith? Faith is anticipating and looking forward to and leaning into and hoping for an eternal inheritance with God. And it is that faith that enables us to recognize sin's deceitfulness and set it aside, set its promised pleasure aside for a greater pleasure in eternity. That's what faith is in the book of Hebrews. Moses did this as well. He looked to the reward. That's why he was able to deal with all of Israel's nonsense. He was looking for the reward. So all these people, just like us, are to be, we're empowered and we're to be empowered not by willpower, but by faith in God's promises. Faith in a future glory that is infinitely better than this life and all the pleasures that sin can provide us. It's not by willpower, it's by believing in God's promises. What was it that caused problems for Israel in the wilderness? Their unbelief. Verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For, for who was those who heard and yet rebelled? Israel is meant to be a spiritual cautionary tale for us now. Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Verse 19, so we see that they are unable to enter because of unbelief. What was the problem? Unbelief. Why did they fall in the wilderness? Why did they complain? They were not believing in that future promise of a glorious inheritance. Had they believed it, they would have put up with all the trouble they were experiencing in the wilderness. 
Faith is central. That's why the accent here is on your faith and on my faith. How do we continue to believe? Well, in this passage, it's by placing ourselves squarely among believers who will watch out for our souls. The command for all of us today is to be genuinely concerned for every single person in this body of Christ. And we'll be closer to others than we will. Uh, we'll be closer to some people than we will others. That's, that's true, but we should have a genuine concern for each person in this body that they make it all the way to the eternal city. The instruction in this passage is for all of us to take an active interest in our brothers' and sisters' faith. We're not just to enjoy their fellowship and their company, although that's pretty awesome. I love the fellowship and company of my brothers and sisters at this church, but that's not the only thing. We should have a real concern for their perseverance. This means prayerfully confronting each other when we need to. It means speaking the truth to one another when we need to. It means having the courage to straightforwardly tell someone when it seems as though they're drifting and when they're unwilling to part with sin. When you see a CBC member drifting, you go after them. When you see them taking greater and greater interest in the things of this world over the things of God, you inquire of what's going on and you ask about it and you remind them of God's grace and His holiness and the wonderful promise. Our work isn't only negative. We're not just confronting and telling people to put off sin. We're also reminding them of that glorious inheritance that they do have if they continue to believe in the Lord Jesus. We point out the sin and the deception in order to get that brother and sister back on the path of believing in their heavenly reward so that they will keep believing and resist sin. This is the way to heaven, brothers and sisters. This is the path to the celestial city. We travel it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenging word, but we thank you for the body of Christ who you've placed in our lives so that we might make it all the way to the end. You've given us a secure salvation. And part of the way you keep us believing is by giving us the body of Christ. We praise you for this wonderful gift of the body. Help us each to take an active interest in each other's spiritual lives. Help those who have not pursued active, an active role in this way to consider membership or consider more active role in the body of Christ if they are already a member. Lord, I pray that you would bless this hearing of your word for our benefit and for Jesus' glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.